Jack Chris Now See Here podcast is underwritten by Oxford Lafayette County Chamber of Commerce and Economic Development Foundation, SettleMyCase.com, Face Value Health, Dr. Michael Sanders, Mazda of Jackson, Farm Bureau Life Insurance, Bank First, JH&H Architects, Benchmark Construction, The Crest Group, Will White Homebuyers, BAMSouth.org, Auto Innovation, and Danny Bedwell for Mississippi State Senate, District 17. Production and technical assistance provided by Roddy Merritt of Merritt Media and Jim Temple. Hello and welcome to Now See Here, the podcast. My name is Jack Chris. Thank you so much for listening and hello to our YouTube audience. Of course, uh, we come to you live uh, through the expertise of Mr. Roddy Merritt of Merritt Media, our technician. And we're actually broadcasting at CeCe's Coffee House uh, today in there downstairs uh, from SettleMyCase.com. So this is going to be a truly uh, live broadcast. My guest for the, uh, for the show today is a man who has become renowned, really, in political and philosophical circles as probably the leading libertarian theorist and advocate maybe in the world. His name is Stephen Kinsella. And he lives in Houston, Texas, which is where he is uh, talking to us from today. Stefan is a patent attorney, even though he is famously known for opposing IP and patents. We'll go into that. He's appeared on the Stossel Show on Fox Network. He has spoken all over the world, including Yale University. He's spoken in uh, events in Turkey, uh, Berkeley. And Stefan, I think, uh, welcome to the show. But did you not speak at Moscow or were you invited to that and didn't make it? You know, I've been invited to uh, to St. Petersburg and Moscow three times now, and uh, I've been leery about going. So uh, one of the times I appeared remotely by telepresence, so not in person, but uh, I figured that was a little bit safer. And well, yeah, and I would imagine that what there was a translator or the your uh, interview was translated on the screen. Yes, it was translated in real time. Now, I have uh, interviewed local libertarians. We had Danny Bedwell on as a guest. Uh, Stefan, you and I have known each other. I don't think it's a secret. Uh, and certainly, we've been friends for many, many years. We met through a mutual admiration of Ayn Rand. We've both since kind of moved on past that phase of objectivism, even though we, uh, it's safe to say we both admire and respect Ayn Rand. But you're a libertarian theorist. For those out there who uh, don't know what that entails. Could you give us like a, a nutshell explanation of what you espouse? And also, if you would talk about anarcho-capitalism, because that phrase is starting to gain a little bit more credibility, I think. And most people, when they hear the word anarchy, they think, uh, you know, riots in the streets. So uh, I'll, I'll let you run with those two questions to start the podcast. Sure, but I'd be remiss not to tell you happy Juneteenth on this uh amazing day of the celebration of human liberation because that's what of course libertarianism is all about liberation of humans from slavery of different types um you know we didn't quite eliminate slavery with the 13th amendment as everyone who thinks about it could figure out um so uh you know especially for you and me being from the south uh with all this guilt on our shoulders being part of all this horrible carnage uh, i think uh, we have to give some respect to juneteenth well, being a little, a little bit, uh, a little bit uh, sarcastic, but uh, yeah, well, no, not completely. I, you know, I'm in favor of human liberty and uh, the eradication of slavery. We libertarians basically want to eliminate all slavery, 
and slavery means the ownership of someone else's body. Um, and so the basic libertarian position would be really just a spinning out of the implications of the idea that everyone should be the owner of themselves, and that means the complete owner. So the, when it comes to questions about who gets to do what with your body, the answer we libertarians give is the person himself should be the one who gives the answer, uh, who, who makes that decision, who has that right to choose. Um, so the, basically, can it's, I stop it's just you there? Ownership. Let yeah, me let ahead. me stop you there because if you would ask someone on the street if they own themselves, they would probably look at you like they, you were crazy and say, "Of course I do," but they don't, huh? Well, so ownership means that if there's a resource and there's a dispute over it, then the owner is the one who gets to make the decision about what to do with that resource. And our human bodies are resources, and um, we say that we're self-owners. But the, the, the government maintains the ability, and they claim the right to, to basically do things with your body that you don't agree to. So, for example, the government can take your body and put it in a cage called prison if you violate one of the rules that they just announced, right? Like uh, if you don't pay your taxes or if you don't sign up for conscription to fight in one of their wars or if you – uh, sell marijuana or cocaine. And so the government basically maintains a claim of ownership over your body as if you were a slave. And in fact, if you look at the 13th Amendment, the 13th Amendment did not prohibit slavery entirely. It carved out an exception for uh, incarceration for punishment for a law, for, for a violation of a law. And of course, the government maintains the ability to make whatever laws they want so they can criminalize whatever behavior they want and then put you in jail for that or enslave you for that. And this is, of course, what chain, gang, chain gangs were. They were basically uh, people that were enslaved by the state under the guise of having violated criminal law that the government makes up. So the 13th Amendment actually did not abolish slavery. And then, of course, there's the, the, uh, the income tax amendments, which allows the government to tax us. And if you don't pay your taxes, you go to prison. And, of course – the government maintains the right to enslave you and kidnap you and force you to go fight in wars, which is called conscription. So we don't really own our bodies completely. The government maintains a hefty right to tell us what to do with our bodies. But let me back up, because the examples you're giving, I think a lot of people would and do agree with. They would say that taxes are necessary, that a draft is necessary, and that drugs should be illegal. So they would tell you that there's nothing wrong with this. These are perfectly legitimate laws. They're in the books. We approve of them. So libertarians are absolutely for lawlessness. Well, but they're not for self-ownership then because they, if they think that these laws are necessary, well, then what they're saying is that slavery of a certain type is necessary. Um, and they can believe that, but that's basically what the, uh, what the antebellum kind of racist slave-owning – white southerners believed before the war they believed that slavery was necessary and you know modern people also believe slavery is necessary they think that it's necessary to tax people to have government therefore it's okay to do it even though it means using violence against someone who's basically innocent so they could have an argument that it's necessary but they can't deny that it's a form of slavery so it would be kind of a circular reasoning then 
Right. Okay. So you asked what a, a libertarian theorist is, and so you and I are libertarians, and we've been libertarians for a long time. I would think liber- the best way to describe it is libertarianism is a is the political philosophy, right? It's it's sort of uh, up there with conservatism and liberalism and socialism and communism. It's one of the types of political ideologies or philosophies. And really, our view is just the consistent view of the founding fathers, which was classical liberalism, which is the idea of individualism and human freedom, but informed heavily by a lot of economics, especially Austrian economics. Um, and taken very consistently. So we are, we basically believe in human freedom, but we really mean it. So cons- some conservatives are for it, but only within certain limits. Like the drug war is a good example. If if you say that they, they will say that people should have individual freedom, but not to do drugs. So they start making exceptions to what the freedom entails. We are the people that don't make exceptions. We have a totally consistent philosophy and view of human life. And um, but yeah. that, that okay, and that's encapsulated. I mean, we could go into to greater detail and theory, but I want to talk about something which uh, you have become very well known for. You've written a book uh, entitled "Against Intellectual Property," and you've got another book coming out soon that I want to talk about shortly. But intellectual property is another one of those things. It's like self ownership. I think so many people in our society agree that, or think they do that if they write or produce something, whether it's a piece of music or sculpture or uh, write a a novel, that they own it and it's theirs and they can go to a lawyer and get it copyrighted and trademarked. And you say that is one of the worst disasters in the history of modern thought, correct? Um, I think it is actually. And I think the root thinking behind that has led to uh, innumerable human suffering and and death, to be honest. Uh, Why? Although it does, well, because um, people are used to thinking this way because the laws are based around that idea. So we do have patent law, which protects in rights and inventions, and copyright law, um, which protects rights in literary works and artistic creations. So people are used to it, and they're used to that being part of the fabric of you know, Western property rights and society. Um, but it was all based upon a mistake, and the mistake was this idea. You know, the founding fathers of America based their they based their constitutional ideas, the Declaration of Independence, their ideas about human rights. They based it upon the Enlightenment philosophy and the individualist philosophy that was around at the time. And this idea was sort of a way that we were emerging from the monarchical societies of the past and where kings and rulers claimed this divine right to rule right over people and there was a pushback against that and there was a growing sort of individualist movement and what came out of it was this idea that we only have governments to protect us they only are there at our consent and they have to protect us and respect our rights in order to be legitimate in other words, they're not legitimate governments because God appointed them as our masters and overlords, but because we give them some powers to help protect us in an orderly way. But those powers are very limited by constitutions and by human rights. Okay. Right. So, so that's sort of the what emerged. But as part of this argument, John Locke, who's one of the key um, intellectual figures at the founding fathers. 
relied on. John Locke had this argument, and he was trying to argue against hereditary monarchy and the divine right of kings. He was trying to argue for more of the right of the people, right, a natural right of the people. And he fashioned his argument in such a way as to do that. But when he did it, he basically relied a little too much on this idea that we own our labor. So I think that what the mistake made was Locke said that we own ourselves, and therefore we own our labor, and therefore we own these unowned things in the world that we mix our labor with. So he made an argument that we have the right to self-ownership and that we have the right to own property in the world naturally and not because of the government and despite if the government wants to take it away. But he based his argument upon this idea that we own our labor. Right. And that's a very metaphorical argument. It's not straightforward. It's not very rigorous. And it's true as far as it goes, but he made, he made an unnecessary set of assumptions just to convince people. He kept making different metaphorical arguments, including this idea that you own your labor. And the idea is, sounds true in a metaphorical sense, right? I own myself, therefore I own my labor. But if you think about it closely, that makes no sense. You, your labor is just the actions that you perform with your body, and you don't own the actions you perform. You own your body. What, but that? that's the way Locke worded it, and that ended up leading to this idea that we still have today that if you use your labor or your mental effort to create something valuable, that you should have a property right in it. And by the way, a related aspect of this idea eventually led to communism because it led to the Marxian idea, right? The, the idea of Karl Marx and others like Adam Smith and David Ricardo, that there's a labor theory of value. In other words, that the value in a product that someone makes is because of the time of the labor spent on it by the worker. Let me, and therefore, go, sir, go ahead. Well, I, I was going to just go ahead, continue with your, your argument. I'm just saying that uh, one one unfortunate result of Locke's original mistake about putting so much emphasis on labor was that it, it actually ended up leading to the labor theory of value, which gave rise to communism and hundreds of millions of deaths, of course, uh, ultimately. Well, well, but there's still a point of contention among libertarians about the legitimacy of IP, of, of intellectual property. Um, so, so it's still not settled yet. I, I know you've done your part. You've probably influenced more thinkers, but let's let's bring it here down to practical uh, terms, Stefan. I mean, in Jackson alone, where I'm broadcasting from, Jackson, Mississippi, there are probably hundreds of intellectual property attorneys. So it's it's almost become a business, has it not? And, yes, and, and therefore, and, 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 yes. it, it would be hard to dismantle it or to change the idea, and it probably won't happen in our lifetimes. I, I'm wondering, do you ever feel like you're just, uh, you know, talking from the ivory tower, and you know, it's never going to trickle down the idea, or do you think you're starting a ripple that that will, as I metaphor I like to use, you know, eventually become a wave? I think the um, um, there's reason to hope for a couple of reasons. Um, unlike so I think IP is a very entrenched mentality, and there's a lot of special interest groups that are have risen up around it. It's going to be very hard to defeat, like legislatively or with political action, um, because it's been so so successful in bamboozling people into thinking that two false things. They think that 
ideas like uh, inventions or novels or property because the government has used the word intellectual property to describe it. Uh, when really it's just a monopoly privilege the government grants, which is contrary to the free market. Um, so they've been successful in their propaganda campaign, right? Um, and uh, the other thing is that uh, it, there are special interest groups that are going to keep pushing for it. But I do think there are two there are two reasons for hope. Number one is that I have made lots of progress among libertarians. Now they are still a minority of society, but libertarians eyes can be opened on this issue it's not like one of the intractable issues like abortion or nuclear weapon ownership or something like that it's really a lot of people's eyes open when they finally understand the case against intellectual property um and then second the emergence of technology has helped to undermine the ability of the state to enforce these laws in particular in terms of copyright the internet and digital file sharing and encryption and torrenting have made it almost impossible for the government to stop um, what they call piracy, which is not really piracy. It's just copying information. But so people download files for movies and books and music yeah. all the time. Yeah. Um, and that will never, as Cory Doctorow said, the Internet is the world's greatest copying machine. And from this day forward, it will never get harder to copy things. It's only going to get easier. Um, and then in terms of patents, I think that the emergence of 3D printing is going to put a dent in the ability of the state to enforce patent law because people will ultimately be able to have a little machine where they can print any device they want uh, without anyone's permission, even if it violates a patent. So well, over time, technology will help us make patent and copyright law ineffectual. I hope. We have about five minutes left with our guest, Stefan Kinsella. Stefan is a libertarian theorist, uh, an advocate. He lives in Houston, Texas. Uh, and Stefan, of course, you have appeared on Stossel, and you, as I mentioned, you've spoken all over the world. I think people find it interesting that you yourself are a patent attorney. What, Briefly, what led you to change your, your beliefs or uh, uh, realize that IP is the evil? as you call it, or, or, you know, the detrimental thing it is? Well, I think that um, it's not because, but because I was starting to study this issue to become an expert in it as a practitioner in 19, say, 92 or 93, um, I had always been, been uneasy with the argument for intellectual property by some libertarians like Ayn Rand, because it was like a utilitarian type argument instead of the more principled argument she t she typically makes. So I had always been uneasy with it, but when I started deciding to practice in that area because it was a growing and lucrative area of law, um, I kept looking into it and thinking about it and researching it. So I was determined to find a better argument to justify what my chosen field of law was. Yeah, And I kept running against walls but because every argument I would come up with was flawed. And finally, I realized <laughs> I was tr I was I was basically arguing tendentiously with myself. I was I had a goal in mind, and I was just arguing like a lawyer for a, for a point. But I decided I need to look for the truth, and I need to let the truth take me wherever it takes me. Right? Yeah. So yeah. the question is, is IP justified or not? And I, when I started thinking about it that way, I started looking again at the foundations of property, which is scarcity. Right? We we allocate property rights in response to scarcity in the world and things like that. And then I, real, I finally realized from reading people like 
uh, Tom Palmer and Murray Rothbard and Wendy McElroy and Sam Konkin, uh, I finally realized that the complete mentality behind using law to protect ideas is completely protectionist and anti-free market and totally unjustified. So I came to that conclusion as just part of an effort to 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 understand whether there was a, a justified basis for my own field, and I've come to the conclusion that there's not. Now, happened knowing the patent law and the copyright law very very well as a practitioner, and having dealt with dozens or hundreds of clients and hundreds or thousands of patent cases in detail over the years, that's helped to inform my ability to understand how the system actually works and it just reinforced my opinion but it's not necessary to it and i remember when you were kind enough to to uh let me tag along with you to manhattan to fox studios when john stossel interviewed you he asked you the same question and you said well uh, an oncologist wants to kill cancer right he wants to be put out of business right so it's the same with you that was a brilliant answer i thought Yes, and I think one of the patent attorneys listening was not happy with it. <laughs> <laughs> I recall. But, and, and um, I, I look at it this way. Um, um, given that there is a patent system, there's a need for patent attorneys, just like given that there is a drug war, there's a need for defense attorneys to defend people from prosecution for victimless crimes, even though if we wiped out the drug war, these defense attorneys wouldn't have a job doing that anymore well, yeah right yeah. and a, 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 an oncologist trying to cure cancer is employed because there's cancer but his goal is to eradicate cancer and in my role as a public advocate and public thinker i'm against the patent system and would love it to be abolished uh, even though it would have uh, effects on my career well, give, give me a quick answer to this if you can when you say propaganda it, it to me it implies uh, are, are downright uh, says that those who are IP lawyers or government officials are complicit, that they know better, but but they don't. So how can you say that it's propaganda? They think they're doing the right thing by enforcing um, these laws. Well, historically, uh, these these laws were originally called monopoly privileges, so there was no bones about it. Uh, the uh, the the stat the patent law originated in the Statute of Monopolies of 1623 in England. And copyright law originated in the Statute of Anne in 1710, and at the time, no one, no one denied that they were just monopoly privilege grants issued by the government. They just thought they were necessary, but no one pretended like they were property rights or part of the free market. They were just government uh, tweaks to what they thought were market failures, basically. Yeah. Um, but when there was a backlash against the effects of patent law. In the 1800s, with the growing industrial revolution and the free market, the free market economists started saying, what the hell are we doing granting all these monopoly privilege grants in the form of patents, which, which restrict innovation and restrict freedom and restrict competition? And so the response was by the defenders, like the interests that were entrenched at the time, like the, the growing pharmaceutical industry and – well, that was a little early, but anyway, mm -hmm. the airplane industry – Companies that had grown used to this this protectionism from competition, they started defending it by saying it's not a government-granted privilege. It's a natural right. It's a property right. 
And everyone said, it's not a property right because property rights don't expire after 17 years and they don't have to do with intangible things. And so then the response was, well, it's a special type of property right. It's an intellectual property right. Uh. So that's what happened. So the, the term intellectual property was explicitly come up with as a propagandistic defense to the movement to abolish these privilege grants. Now, nowadays, among modern attorneys, most of them are not very uh, – they're really not that interested in normative theory and justification and reasoning. They just want they a job. Just yeah, yeah. They want a job, and they want to repeat what they've heard. Right. That, like, oh, well, patents are – so they know nothing more about patent policy or government policy than any normal person. Well, uh, and in fact, they're biased, uh, right? They have a bias to be in favor of it. You know, you're doing more than, than anyone uh, now on, on you know, the Internet, uh, on changing people's views. And Stephen Kinsella, I want you to give your website address for those who are interested in learning more about this fascinating topic. And we'll have you on again, and we'll, we'll elaborate. But uh, give out that, that information if you would. Most of my uh, stuff related to this is on my website, c4sif.org. That's the number four, c4sif.org, which means Center for the Study of Innovative Freedom, basically, which collects together a lot of material explaining why getting rid of restrictions on, on freedom of thought, basically, and freedom of innovation would result in more prosperity for the human race well, uh, and why the patent system has basically retarded the progress of the human race and slowed down pro uh, technological progress and made us yeah. more poor than we would be otherwise. You know, so Stephen, it's a huge travesty. The, the yeah. problem is you're a little shy about this. You, you need to kind of come <laughs> out of your shell. <laughs> when, is, when is the magnus opus, the book that you've been teasing friends and fans of yours for so many years, when is the book coming out? Well, whenever someone sends me an email asking me when that book's going to come out, I say about about nine months after someone stops asking me. Okay, well, never mind. So now we <laughs> but know. I think I think really later this year or early next year it's going to finally come out. And this is called Law in a Libertarian World. Yeah. And it's yeah. an edited and revised set of my essays on sort of the foundations of libertarian property rights and libertarian theory. Stephen Kinsella, listen, you're doing a great job uh, doing what you do. It was a fascinating discussion. Thanks for coming on Now See Here and being a guest, my friend. Thanks, Jack. That was Stephen Kinsella, and we'll be talking with him again soon on Now See Here. I'm Jack Chris. Thanks so much, much for listening. Thanks to Roddy Merritt, my technical man. Thanks for CC's Coffee House for hosting us today. Take care. The podcast you just heard was made using Anchor. Ever thought about making your own podcast? Anchor makes it really easy for anyone to get started. It's a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing podcasts. Best of all, it's 100% free. Sign up now at anchor.fm slash new. That's anchor.fm slash new to get started.